0: Um, has everyone here gotten their test in Um, there are a couple of people who um, needed extra time for uh, viruses going around and things like that so we shouldn't so is there anyone here who is in that position okay so we shouldn't really talk about the exam much but I'm uh, I'm curious as to who's not here they're probably still working on it you're not still working on it right you're not just sitting there working on it okay but I'm. Um, I think it's okay to ask um, what people, what um, clips people worked on. Um, so, um, and I'm just curious whether uh, I've glanced at a few of them. Um, I was distressed to see. I have to tell you, and if you're, if I'm thinking of you, then think about yourself too, kind of the way Buster Keaton does. Um, that several people imagined that um, Barclay was spelt B-A-R-K-L-E-Y um, which you would only think if you didn't actually read um, what Barclay said because, um, because his name is spelt in white on white how about black and white like the university that's named after him is this not huh isn't that funny it's actually not a blackboard <laughs> um, so we can gouge it in. So um, it's like you know when people say, "Wait, so where do you go, Brandeis? What's that?" That's like saying that's like thinking Barkley is. Um, and one person actually um, was thinking of a basketball player, um, in 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 um, giving him not his real first name, which was George, um, but Charles. Um, so that, afford, that will afford, I'm, I'm sure there's much, much innocent mirth for Matthew and me um, <coughs> as we grade your papers. Um, what'd you guys, did you guys like doing this sort of exam or not? Yeah, yeah? all right, good. Good answer since uh, we're going to be grading you. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, why don't we just go around? Um, Lacer, what did you do? What clips? I did Silence of
1: the Lambs. Oh yeah, and, and I
0: did uh, the Lady in the Lake. The witch. Lady in the Lake. Lady in the Lake. Okay, it's okay for you to hear. I mean, you probably know what the clips are anyhow. So um,
1: yeah. I used duck soup and pennies from heaven.
0: Okay, so it's four for four.
2: I did um, Inception and pennies from heaven.
0: Okay. Inception
1: and Psycho.
0: Oh okay. Yeah. Oh. In
1: the,
0: uh, lady in the Lake and Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Okay. <laughs> All right.
2: I did Doug Soup and Psycho. Lady in the Lake, Inception.
0: Jay?
1: I did um, Lady in the Lake and Inception. I did Psycho and uh, Penny's Recovery.
0: Huh. It's interesting what the how the pairings are working. Yeah.
1: Um, Inception and Sense of Okay.
0: Okay. Sam? Uh,
1: Inception, Lady in the Lake. Um, also, Inception and Lady
0: in the Lake. <laughs> 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 hmm. Okay. Um Yeah. Sorry. Hmm? Me? Yeah. Oh,
1: sorry. Um Inception and uh and Penny's from Heather.
0: Okay. Um Jay we did, yeah. Um I did Silence of the
1: Lambs and Cycle.
0: Alright.
2: Inception and Light in the Lake. And you yeah.
0: <laughs> what would you have done?
2: Uh, of those choices, I don't know the question. But, uh, well, I like Inception, and the only one I knew, uh, probably Silence of
0: the Lambs. Okay. What would you have done?
2: And duck Soup and Psycho.
0: No one did Lane. That's interesting. Was, were any of you tempted to do Lane? You were tempted, but then you resisted the temptation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You said, well, that was a serial experiment I won't do again. Um, same thing? <laughs> <laughs> All right. What did you do? I did
1: pennies from heaven and uh, I'm inception.
0: Okay. Um, interesting. Okay, well, so you have a paper due a week from today. Everyone, Not everyone seems to have known that from emails that I got, but you did. You thought it was due today? or oh, no. What did you think? I just
1: didn't know we had it assigned yet because I thought we were going
0: to get knocked for it. Yeah, you're not. Um, you can have possible prompts. Um, possible prompts would be these. You could do some other stuff from the midterm if you want. You can pick your own clips to write about in, uh, the midter- in a midtermy way, except that this would be more thoughtful and more extended and you would be spelling people's names right. Um, that would be good. Um, you can do the thing where you um, d- piece together your own set of clips. Um, and um, discuss what is so interesting about what you've done um, the way Walt Whitman reviewed his own books um, and talked about how great they were. Um, it's kind of like the standard thing you do on Amazon now. Um, the first <laughs> the, the five star reviews are by the author um, and um, so those are all possibilities. Um, if you want something more um, explicit, I mean the prompts I gave you were that that's That's the exam. Um, But if you want something more explicit, you could think about um, what you'll be reading this week and what we watched, even though we'll be discussing it to some extent um, this week and next. Um, You could think about Blade Runner and La Captive and the question of other minds, the way it's um, being discussed by um, Descartes and by Austin and... um, and also the things that uh, Zizek, um, spelled Zizek, but pronounced Zizek, and um, Silverman have to say about it. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit, um, but it's also because it's because it's fresh and new in your mind. Um, it, if you want to write about that, that um, seems like a good thing to write about. Um, but the idea, the main thing is be interesting. Um, I mean, be relevant. It should be about stuff in the class. Um, don't, I don't want your theory of what happened to the Malaysian jet. Um, but be interesting and be relevant and, uh, you know, say something that you actually want to say. Um, if you like, um, you can do um, an argument between um, different perspectives. You could even do it as a dialogue if you want, do, not a film dialogue, not... I hate you. You've always, ah, but to be is to be perceived, so shut up. Um, not that. Um, but, um, you know, you saw a bit of a platonic dialogue, and Plato's dialogues actually do tend to work that way, which is that Socrates asks really sharp questions and says really smart things, and then he's challenged by, yes, Socrates, and evidently you were correct. Um, and so you get a lot of real dialogical um, conflict there. Um, but if you want to do it as a genuine dialogue, because these are these are hard issues, and it may be that one thing about film and about the strangeness of the experience of film—you know—it's a human; it's really a human experience that's um, only a century old. And um, part of the strangeness about the experience of film is that um, there are distinctions in perception that come into human experience with the coming of film that um, had never really existed before. Um, Their their distinctions and discretions and um, separations, splitting, that um, occur in our experience um, that haven't occurred before. And therefore, it's not at all clear. That's one of the values of film to philosophy is that it's not at all clear that any philosophical position, um, at least any philosophical position that um, has been articulated before the coming of motion pictures, um, that any philosophical position will remain unchallenged by the experience that we have in um, watching movies, in attending to movies. That's one reason that... um, so many films are to some extent about the experience of film. That is the experience of... um, One way that we've been putting it and um, a way that um, I'll repeat now um, is the experience of one-way presence that you get in film. That um, if you're emotionally involved in what you're watching, um, then the characters... In the film, in the story Are present to you But you're not present to them um, And that's generally Not the case with, um, with presence That is generally It's a transitive um, experience If someone is in front of you You're in front of them If someone is in your vicinity You're in their vicinity That's the way real life works Is the transitivity of vicinity but in film, you don't get that transitivity of vicinity. Um, actually, transitivity isn't the word I want, the, reflex, the reflexivity of vicinity. Um, you don't get that um, in film. We care about people who are not there, or to whom we are, or who in some sense are there to us, but to whom we are not there. Nothing we can do um, will affect um, what characters on screen are doing or feeling. Um, but what they're doing or feeling can have a strong effect on what we're doing or feeling. Um, a movie, I think that... Well, I think it's worth worth noticing just how many different ways this, can, this happens and this works out. A movie that I'm thinking of uh, that we won't be watching, although we will be watching something close to a horror movie, but a movie that I'm thinking of um, where this works... Um, is the amazing Austrian movie by Michael Haneke called Funny Games, um, which I know some of you have heard me talk about in other classes, but it's um, since one should always have ranked lists of everything, it is the third scariest movie I've ever seen, um, which means it's pretty scary, much scarier than Psycho. Um, And Psycho's scary enough. Um, Those of you who did Psycho, I think that scene is just scary even if you know the scene really well. Yeah, yeah. I think Repulsion. Um, have you seen it? No. I thought of doing a clip from Repulsion, but then I thought, no, you'll just sort of scream and be unable to get your exam in, and that wouldn't be good. Um, okay, number two? Um, it might be um, Funny Games is possible, I'm, I'm going back and forth, but, but number two might be The Tenant. So the two scariest movies uh, might be Repulsion and The Tenant, both of which are Polanski, um, who's a scary guy, let's face it. Um, but for for quite other reasons. Um, but Repulsion is... Have, have people seen Repulsion? Um, yeah, it's... Uh, when I saw it as an undergraduate, it's the kind of thing that if you see on TV, don't be alone. Um, but if you see it with one other person, it won't be that scary. Um, but if you see it in a movie theater, it's terrifying. And um, when I went to see it as an undergraduate, um, about halfway through... Um, I mean, people were leaving. They started leaving about halfway through because they just couldn't stand how frightened they were. Um, It wasn't that they thought it was bad. It's that they thought it was just too good. And about halfway through after this unbelievably scary moment, um, (laughs) I remember this kid leaving um, the, the hall where we were watching it. And and there was a door in front right next to the screen, and as he went through the door, he turned around and screamed at us, why are you doing this to yourselves? Why? Why? What is wrong with you? Um, And then he laughed, and uh, uh, everyone kind of laughed nervously for a second and then got really frightened again. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's it's scary. The Tenant um, also, um, and a really interesting movie. If you're looking for a really interesting movie to work on, there's... um, it would be very interesting to compare The Tenant to, um, to Beckett's film, um, and that's telling you nothing about The Tenant. It's not like, oh, great, so someone's going to be creeping around walls and, and looking at himself. No, it's not that. Um, it's, it's preposterously entertaining but really scary. But in, the, in, um, in um, Funny Games, uh, which breaks every possible scary movie rule you can break, has anyone seen that? Um, so you know what I mean about it's breaking the rules. Um, one rule is that the Jeopardy should, the, the worst thing that can happen should be the last thing that can happen. It's not true in funny games. The thing that you most don't want to happen is actually, in fact, the earliest thing to happen. And after that, you say, well, what else could happen that's as bad as that? But, boy, are you wrong when you imagine that. Um, but there's a sequence in funny games where there's, um, Silence, that is, no one talks for about 20 minutes um, because they are so alert and they're listening so hard to find out um, whether things are over yet or not. And um, the result is, and it's quite amazing actually, it's just just a brilliant um, understanding of the experience of filmmaking that Haneke is um, doing there, is that if you see it in a movie theater, Every single sound that you hear in the theater, every breath someone takes, every time someone coughs, um, every time someone shifts in their seat, um, no matter any sound at all in the theater, everyone else in the audience is going, <gasps> and um, so we just it's the audience frightening itself um, and just absolutely terrified. And what happens is the um, that combination or that distinction between diegetic and non-diegetic sound that we've already discussed, that is sound that characters in the film can hear versus sound that only the audience can hear, but that still comes from the film. Um, What Haneke has done is he's used sound that isn't coming from the film, but that's coming from the audience itself to scare the audience. Um, So he's really good with room noise. Um, if you that's actually a technical term and it's, if you've seen um, Living in Oblivion, it's actually which is a really good movie um, it's a term that's used in that but if, does, is anyone a filmmaker? Um, so do you know what room noise is?
2: Yeah, it's like if you're recording a dialogue for example in a big room with pretty good acoustics if you um, record the dialogue and afterwards you get like a room tone mm-hmm. where it's
0: Right, so you can vaguely hear how the how the ventilation system is on, and you're probably not hearing it until I mentioned it, but you hear when it cuts out. Um, so that's actually a really fascinating thing. It fascinated Nietzsche about uh, human perceptual experience, which is that we notice changes even if the change is um, the sudden end of something we notice that we haven't been noticing something that's been present, like like the air conditioner or the fan or the ventilation system. Um, so all rooms, the word ambient actually comes from a word that means room. Um, and ambient sound, the sound of a room is something, it's the acoustics of a room. And if you're if you want to get a scene, if you want the sound of a scene right, you also have to record that scene in perfect silence. And then what you're recording is this imperceptible background um, for what the space um, that any dialogue um, is going to occur in, what that space sounds like during silence and that way when there is silence in the scene, when you're editing the scene and you want a moment of silence, you want that silence to sound like the silence when someone is pausing for a second. Um, That is the silence that you're recording when you're recording sound in the scene to begin with. Um, So what Haneke is doing with room noise um, is basically he's recorded 20 minutes of room noise and it's blended with the noise of the room that you're in when you're watching the movie. And um, therefore any sound that comes from other real living people in the audience uh, merges with the sound that we're listening for from the film itself. And um, that means that What's present to us and what we're present to Becomes part of the experience of, the, of, of that movie um, Just as laughing does in comedies That is what he's done is he's done a horror analog to laughing Which is that if you go see a comedy um, Part of the experience of comedy is hearing The real life laugh track of other audience members laughing um, and if they're not laugh, if they're not laughing, you're not laughing. Um, that's why TV shows have laugh tracks, um, because there aren't other people in the room to laugh with you, and boy, do people feel stupid when they laugh alone. Um, everyone's done it occasionally, um, seen something funny and started laughing and then just realized they looked like an idiot, um, like that, uh, flash mob commercial in Grand Central Terminal. Um, and, um... But if there's a laugh track, you don't feel like you're alone. So there is the presence of other audience members. Yeah.
1: Um, just out of curiosity, if somebody makes the mistake of not recording the room noise, what do you hear? I mean, what 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 is it that you perceive if the silence doesn't match?
0: You perceive that you perceive a splice, um, and you don't perceive it as a boom sound or or a static sound, but you perceive that it's not right. Um if you listen to um NPR you can and if you listen really hard you can hear this because um all the intros to NPR shows are recorded and used over and over and over again. Um you know but just the the, the really um obvious version of this is something like um thank you for calling six, one, seven, 2... Four, two, three, three, two Nine, your call is important to us, and John, we'll be with you in a moment. Um, so it's, that's the very obvious version of that. Um, I should have given you a 555 number. I just made that number up, so don't call it. Um, but um, but you'll, you can hear subtle versions of it. You know, one of the things about movies um, is that we perceive... Um, with a great, with a huge amount more subtlety um, than we know we're perceiving. And what the subtlety of our perceptions have to do with is noticing changes. Um, so we're able to notice very, very subtle changes in things because um, on a non-conscious level, on an automatic um, level, we are keeping track or our brains are keeping track of things um, and and, um, saying you don't have to pay attention to this because it's not changing in hundreds and thousands of different dimensions. Um, And when there are changes, then our brains tell our minds, actually there's been a change here, notice it. And so it's really hard to, I mean, just the technology and the the effort that goes into making a movie, um, all that effort goes into it because very, very subtle um, failures of continuity will be registered by our brains and up uh, and, and um, bounced upwards into our minds as something we have to pay attention to. Um, what we're used to doing, what we evolved to do, is find our way through forests. And um, there are tons and tons and tons of dangers in forests, but if we're paying attention to everything at every moment, our brains would explode. Um, so what we do in fact is um, we're only alert to things that change rather than things that stay the same and that's um, but, but the things so what the art of movie making is and room noise is a good example of this is making sure that um, things don't change that the audience um, that, does, that isn't going to matter to telling the story or to the audience it's keeping things going over cut after cut after cut, over um, reshooting, reshot after reshot after reshot. And so what happens is you're having something that looks like it's pretty much um, um, unfolding over linear time um, and in single places at least um, scenes look that way. Um, but they can take days and days to to do, but they have to be done in such a way that they stay similar enough throughout all the technical reshooting of the same scene and the cuttings within scene and so on, that they stay stable enough that it feels, not that it looks, but that it feels to the audience like this is unfolding continuously. Um, And that's why the... Difference between, you know, making a movie with your iPhone where you can get 90% of what um, a movie maker can do and that last 10% is so tremendous because it's the last 10% which consists in keeping everything that shouldn't change from changing. Um, that's what's really hard about it. Um, the almost imperceptible means the perceptible. Almost imperceptible changes are the changes the audience will notice. The scariest moment in Repulsion is a moment like that. Um, it's a change you suddenly notice. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's scary. Um, all right. Um, so one way, then, to talk about this and to start talking about the issues um, in Blade Runner and in La Captive, which you'll see tonight... Um, is partly by telling you something by way of introduction to La Captive. So um, La Captive is by the great filmmaker Chantal Ackerman. Um, It actually had its U.S. premiere at Brandeis, I am proud to say, since I was the person who got it here. Um, And it's based on um, two volumes of uh, Marcel Proust's great novel, In Search of Lost Time. Um, The two volumes have the title, I'll just give you the English titles, um, The Prisoner and the Fugitive. And um, the Prisoner and the Fugitive are the same woman. In the book, her name is Albertine. Um, In the movie, it's not, but she's based on Albertine in Proust. And um, the Prisoner and the Fugitive are the narrator's... um, She is, Albertine is... Um, the narrator's girlfriend, which is to say the woman who lives with him, um, who he doesn't know whether he loves or not, and who um, he is um, obsessed with, but also somewhat obsessed with um, not being obsessed with. And he doesn't know what to think about her, and he doesn't know what she's up to or what she's doing. Um, and, um, he can't, um, either convince himself that he simply is happy with her or that he doesn't want to be with her. And, um, Ackerman really gets, um, this, um, this relationship right. And, um, and she films it quite beautifully. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful film. It may seem a little bit slow to you compared to, I don't know, Blade Runner, um, but it's um um it's about the same issues and um it's haunting and wonderful um so It begins, and I just want you to pay attention to the beginning. Um, This is not a spoiler because Ackerman um, is assuming that a whole lot of her audience knows the story from Proust, and even though she changes it a lot, um, the essential story is the same as in Proust, and so I'll even tell you less than what people who know the Proust would know about it. Um, But it begins... um, in the present tense, that is, after all the events that you're about to see unfold have already occurred. It begins with the character based on the narrator of Proust, that is, the male lead, um, watching a film, a home movie, of the two characters, the two women, um, his girlfriend and her best friend, um, who is possibly her lover. He doesn't know whether, um, she, whether his girlfriend is gay or not. Um, and that's sort of one of the things that's obsessing him throughout the movie. Um, his girlfriend and the woman who is possibly her lover um, on a beach... And um, he presumably has taken a film of them And you can hear that, that, um, cl- that rattling, rustling, clicking sound Of film going through a projector Which is, which is a sound that's rapidly being lost To um, our own experience of movies But used to be the experience The room noise of a movie theater um, So uh, he's watching a movie of them As they are on a beach and he is trying to read their lips as they talk to each other um, and trying to figure out what it is that they're saying to each other so the movie begins with the male lead with the um, subjectively the, the focalized if you know what that word means the character that the story is focused on um, from whose experience um, we are having depicted for us and um, He is watching a silent movie where he's trying to reconstruct what was said while he was filming it by trying to read their lips. Um, So he's doing some very, very intense watching and he's watching something that is irretrievably in the past and yet that is mattering to him in the present. Um, So that is a situation Um, in which they are in some sense present to him or at least he is emotionally concerned with what is happening among these figures who are present to him but only through technology, only as as their own technological appearance on film as projected through a projector onto a screen not present to him as other human beings to whom he would also be present. So the reason I bring that up is, um, even before you've seen the movie, um, is that it's relevant to what's going on in Blade Runner, um, in which the replicants are also, you could say, um, possibly present to um, the humans, in that movie through technology. And the real question is to what extent um, are others present to them? So there's a way in which Blade Runner also, I mean, La Captive, obviously, because it starts with um, someone watching a film, um, is about the relation of... Um, film to knowledge of others, to what is going on in other people's minds, which is our topic for these two weeks, um, and what has gone on in their minds when you can't know because they're not present to you. But the same is true in a different sort of way, or maybe not that different a sort of way, in Blade Runner. So, how many people have read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um so um what's the difference? I mean obviously there are differences in plot and there's no Mercerism and so on. Um but what's the difference between the androids and the replicants in Blade Runner? There's there's um yeah, Zach. Uh,
2: well in Blade Runner they're biologically engineered rather than robot engineered.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, I think it's they're they're done subtly enough. I mean, Philip K. Dick is writing in an earlier period where the idea of um, of engineering things biologically, which is a which is a big thing when when uh, Roy is asking um, um, Tyrell about is there any way out of their situation. The, the discussion that they have is a discussion about what's in the what's in the replicant's DNA. That is that their DNA is preventing them. Um, makes it impossible for them to live beyond four years because that's actually part of their genetic code. Um, So that's definitely biological engineering of the sort that is just um, becoming really big in 1982. Um, that is, it's, um, recombinant DNA. That's when people were discovering how to do recombinant DNA. And so Blade Runner is partly, um, responding to, um, the idea of recombinant DNA as a brand new technology that was terrifying to people. Um, now it just, you know, kills monarch butterflies. But back then, it looked like it would destroy the world, um, to some people. Um, whereas Philip K. Dick, writing, um, a decade or two earlier, um, is still thinking in terms of um, uh, what can be done with silicon and um, and um, materials engineering rather than um, DNA engineering. So that's a difference in um, let's say their where how they come into being. But what about characterologically? Do you did you want to say something? No. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, they um, and in the book they're actually not called replicants; they're called androids. Um, an interesting um, uh, cho- uh, a d- an interesting um, change of terminology. Maybe um, might have to do with the idea of it's being biological engineering. That is, androids are human-like, um, andros-like. Entities, whereas replicants would be replicated the way DNA replicates itself. So that's probably I hadn't thought of that, but that's probably a hint of of um, that difference. Um, the androids, into androids, dream of electric sheep um, are highly what we would call autistic. Um, that is, what they don't ever show any indication of is any sort of sympathy. And part of what Dick is doing in the book is trying to delineate what is human by um, using the androids as um, the other to what's human. Um, they show no sympathy, and the result is that we feel no sympathy for them in the book, or very little sympathy for them. They um, they hurt animals out of curiosity. Um, and as in the movie, um, there are very few living animals in the book. It's a post... Um, the movie only hints at this. The book uh, makes it clear that it's a, um, a post-nuclear um, Holocaust world where most of the planet is too radioactive for um, living beings to be able to tolerate. That's why they're jammed into cities as they are um, and um, have the really um, difficult... Um, urban experiences that they do um, and f- through this nuclear um, devastation most animals um, almost all animals have um, died and that's why animals are of such extreme value and then there are the mechanical animals or in the movie the biologically engineered animals um, but they're not real animals uh, remember if, um, uh, you think I'd be working in a place like this if I could afford a real snake um, and the, um, um, all the um, corporate logos on the fish scales and so on, the kind of watermarks, um, 3D-printed watermarks um, that you're getting in the movie. Um, so it really matters in the book that the androids are just curious about what happens if you pull the legs off a spider um, what happens if you dissect an animal. For them, this is a question of pure curiosity. Um, and um, what there isn't is any sense of empathy, either for the animals or for, for each other. Um, and so um, what Dick is doing in the book, and, you know, I mean, there are a lot of great uh, movies based on Philip K. Dick, um, and Philip K. Dick is a really um, amazing SF writer. Um, But what he's doing in the book is um, partly um, describing humans as over-sentimental, over-addicted to their own um, emotions, but also seeing those emotions as saving for human beings and what prevents us from being merely androids. So Deckard in the book... um, begins and we begin with a worry that he might be an android but that worry is very quickly um disproved in the book he's not so which version did you watch the version with the voiceover had people seen that version before how many people was this your first time with blade runner um did you like it i
1: didn't like
0: the voiceovers but i liked the one
1: overall.
0: <laughs> okay uh did you like it eh. Eh? okay um what about you is it your first time yeah <laughs> All right. <laughs> Isn't that funny? My experience is that people go through, their, their like, classes go through five-year periods of liking and not liking Blade Runner. Um, yeah. I was going to say, I watched it for the first time, too. Um, I thought it was a pretty good movie, but I feel like I didn't understand a lot of the things that were in the movie. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about it. We still have to talk about space and time and stuff like that, <laughs> but we will. Um... um So the voiceover was required by the producers um, because it was so confusing. And so when the movie first came out, um, it came out with the voiceover, which um, brought out its noir quality um, really well. Um, And I think there's some really good lines in the voiceover. It may be that it's my favorite version because it's the first version that I saw. Um, But I do think there's some really good lines in the voiceover. Um, and I think it kind of matters at the end also that is that when Deckard um, uh, postulates the reason that um, Roy saves him, those are good lines that you know that maybe at the very end, life, any life mattered enough to him um, that um, he that he would save um, deckard's life. and I also think the voiceover matters. Um, when we find out that Rachel doesn't have um, um, doesn't have an expiration date encoded in her DNA at the very end that that is um, that Deckard has to tell us that also. It could be that so how many people had seen it before without voiceover? Um, did you find the voiceover helpful, unhelpful, disgusting, um, clarifying? Yeah.
2: Well, so I've seen all the cuts in the past, um, so my favorite is the final cut. But I think the theatrical cut. I think it's necessary for someone to really get the full experience of the movie. Um, have like knowing what Deckard's thinking more, even when you're watching the final cut without the voiceover, um, knowing that he's thinking these certain things and and now just seeing him acted out rather than the
0: intrusion of of the voice. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, That is that if you see, um, it's a good reason, unfortunately Ridley Scott does, I think he does some stupid things in the director's cut, Um, but it's a good reason to have a director's cut. It's a good reason to have two versions of the same work because um, the first version can inform your understanding of the second version even as the second version is standing on its own. Um so yeah, that that makes sense to me. What about other people? Yeah. How come?
2: Uh I don't know. Like a lot there's like a lot of gesturing in the movies and I feel like like the way that people dance around one another. Uhhuh
0: Okay. Well, like, I, didn't, I, I didn't really
2: get I didn't feel like the voiceover added to the movie
0: okay um, what about the, and you think the noir atmosphere is obviously is obvious enough without it oh no one did Mike Hammer either any of you tempted to do it Kiss Me Deadly the the
1: one with the box in the
0: yeah camera. yeah the one that's that is the source of Pulp Fiction um, oh, well. Um, write your paper on that. <laughs> now you have your prompt. No, um, you don't have to. Um, um, yeah, there's no voiceover in um, Kiss Me Deadly, I'll just mention. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I didn't actually watch the voiceover version because I had seen it so many times, the regular directors had so many times in the past, I didn't realize, but, but when I hear a voiceover then I imagine someone's retelling the story, and probably that they're retelling it because there's a specific set of morals or that there's a reason that he's retelling it. And I don't think that that was... uh, uh, I don't think that Deckard is the type of person who would sit down with his grandchildren and tell them about the time that... uh, (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing, I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we were looking at it out of the past, but um, the thing about noir detective novels um, as opposed um, perhaps to noir movies, um, and in particular the thing about Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett novels, um, is that um, when the detective narrates, which um, Philip Marlowe does in Chandler and when the um, anonymous detective known as the Continental Op does in Hammett. Sam Spade, is um, The Maltese Falcon, is a third-person novel, and therefore you don't have the detective telling the story. Um, But Dashiell Hammett's most frequent detective um, and the greatest detective in American literature, in my not-so-humble opinion, at least about that. I'm pretty secure in my knowledge of that. Um, the greatest detective in American literature um, is is, um, only known as the Continental Operative or Continental Op and he's the narrator of a a whole lot of Dashiell Hammett stories and a couple of novels and um, both Marlowe and the Op are detectives who would never ever ever think of sitting down and writing up what happened to them Um, and yet here are these first-person narratives that are told by those detectives. And that, I think, is actually a cinematic... um, It's novels learning to do something from cinema, from movies, which is to say that what we... or It's an interesting interaction between fiction and movies because what we have there is someone in our world telling us a story presenting a story to us that doesn't exist in the world that that character lives in. That is to say, if you went into Philip Marlowe's world and you searched through every single written document in that world um, with some super fictional Google, that um, Google and the NSA managed to search every single document that existed in that world, you wouldn't find Marlowe's narrative Of the story It doesn't exist in his world But it does exist in our world And it exists as a first person narrative In our world So a way of putting this Is that a typical noir sentence Might um, legitimately go um, Something like um, The colonel asked me Never to tell anyone His secret um, And I never did The end and it wouldn't be right for us to say, what are you talking about, dude? You just spent 250 pages telling us his secret. I just read it. Um, we would accept immediately that, um, yes, in the fictional world, he never did tell that secret. And the fact that we're reading it doesn't mean that he wrote it. Um, so we read it, but he hasn't written it. That's, um, uh, that's a very noir um, relationship that we can have to a um, first-person hard-boiled detective novel um, um, in the hard-boiled detective novel genre. And voiceover can do that, um, and I think the voiceover in um, um, Blade Runner is doing that. We're never supposed to imagine that um, Harrison Ford or that Rick Deckard are saying this, is saying this, in the world in which he lives. Um, He's saying it to us in our world so that that question of the semi or one way or um, non-reflective presence between us and him is that he can say things to us that are only heard in our world and not in his, not even by him as he says it. Um, because he 's not really saying it it 's rather somehow his voice that 's saying it. so that kind of one way situation, that one way um, conduit and direction of um, of um, presentation of what 's going on in the fictional world um, that 's something you get in war novels, but I think you get it because of the um, noir quality of movies, or there's maybe a back and forth between them. Now, if you remember the voiceover in um, Out of the Past, that voiceover is Jeff telling Anne what happened in the past. But we quickly forget that. That is to say, it quickly becomes, we talked about this, it quickly becomes a kind of voiceover that um, is completely unrealistic. It's not what you would say to the person you loved about um, how you're going to take care of the issues that happened before. And what happens is we it gets motivated within the story of the movie, but it quickly turns into um, a much less... Realistic form of voiceover and a much more noirish form of voiceover. Um, All that um, Turner has to do, all that the movie has to do, is get you into the mindset of listening for voiceover. And then once you're in that mindset, the voiceover can be one way in a way that it isn't in the movie. In the movie, the person speaking knows that he's being heard by the person hearing. And the person hearing, namely Anne, can ask the person speaking, namely Jeff, um, for clarification. And can say, well, what happened then, you know, in that platonic way? Why? Yes, Jeff, you're quite right. Evidently, Jeff, you had no choice. Now, she doesn't. And the point is it becomes um, voice over to audience, voice to audience rather than voice to other character. Um, a way of saying this is to say that mainly what we do in movies is we eavesdrop on dialogue. Um, it's what we would hear if we were eavesdropping or if we planted a bug there. Um, and, um, but in voiceover, we're not eavesdropping. That, that Those lines are for us. Those aren't eavesdropped lines. Those lines are for us. Um, and that's very rare in films. That people are talking to the audience rather than talking to each other while we eavesdrop on what they're saying. Um, so um, that's what gives it its noirish um, quality. And you know, I to me it works, but it may work. It may work um, without it as well. Yeah.
1: I also found it valuable when I read the novel. I didn't know that it was supposed to be sort of an adaptation of the noir genre, um, and I thought that the voice that it was written in was really corny and on the nose. Yeah. And it was only when I saw the movie and I heard the voiceover that I appreciated that it was a noir novel and appreciated that the voice that Dick was writing in was a Noir voice. Yeah. So I found it very valuable.
0: Yeah. Although he does have noir novels than that also. I mean if you like Dick, I can recommend um other novels by him of of that genre. Um, you know, let he, later he he sort of goes crazy mystical, um and some people love it and some hate it. Um But um, and he's starting to do that there, but um, some of his early novels are even more um, dwarish than that. But yeah, I think that's right. Um, so, um what's going on in the movie? I know, so some of you seeing it for the first time um, said you weren't getting all of it. So what's going on in the movie basically is the backstory is... Um, that there's, again, been some sort of disaster. Um, And um, part of the disaster is that um, replicants who are slaves, essentially, um, don't like being slaves. And as the biotechnology improves, as they become closer and closer to being human beings, they become rightly more and more resentful Of the fact that A, they're enslaved, and B, that they have four year lifespans. Um, Do you remember the motto of the Tyrell Corporation? Anyone? Yeah. More human than human. Yes, more human than human. That's our motto. So um, the idea is that um, the replicants are going to be, um, going to have the same moral claims, or maybe even greater moral claims. Um, than human beings have on other humans. As I say, that's not at all part of the book. Um, so what is it that um, the... Um, well, so what happens at the start of the movie? Let's just plot rise. What happens at the start? Why, does, um, uh, why is Deckard brought back after he's quit? I was quit when I come in here, and I'm still quit, he says. Um, why, yeah. Yeah, so replicants who are, who are not permitted, it's partly um, a story or a parable about illegal immigration. Um, replicants not permitted to enter Earth itself um, have escaped, have blown up um, a ship and um, killed some people and have made their way to Earth um, where they're trying to bend, blend in with the populace. And um, <coughs> they're being investigated, um, through a test. Do you remember how the test works? The voigt Kampf test? Yeah? Okay. Well, yeah, but how? Yeah.
1: It's to see their to
0: yeah. So the idea would be that um, the signature, obviously um, it's, you're not going to be able to tell a replicant by X-raying. Um, because they're biologically um, Just like human beings That's why if you shoot them They die If you prick them They bleed um, If you tickle them They laugh um, If you poison them They die And if you wrong them They Anyone know? Sorry? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah If you wrong them They, they take revenge Good Yeah um, Shylock in The Merchant of Venice um, is like the replicants um, so um, you can't tell that they're replicants from their biology but you might be able to tell that they're replicants from their emotional response and so the questions that they're being asked are questions that stress them in various ways um, that's what the Voight-Kampff test um, that's the way it works so do you remember some of the questions yeah well, that's the question that um, um, that that uh, drives him crazy um, but uh, that yeah, it's Leon. Uh, I'll tell you about my mother, he says um, but what, what are some of the questions before that or after some of the questions he asks Rachel turtle on its back in the desert. remember that? Yeah, I, uh,
2: Yeah. he asked Leon why is he not helping the turtle that's flipped over. Yeah. Uh, uh, and
0: then And getting Leon very upset.
2: Right. And then later he asked Rachel about, like, if she got a wallet, of uh, actual leather as a gift, what she would do, uh, because, you know, that would be highly illegal since animals were... Uh, protected. protected.
0: Mm -hmm. And she says, I should be enough for him. Um, And yeah, so in each case, what they're being asked to imagine is something emotionally stressful um, to see how they handle imagining it. Um, And um, the idea is presumably that, well, at least that human emotional signatures will be different from replicant emotional signatures. Um, And presumably that human emotional signatures will um, be deeper and um, humans will get more stressed by these questions. Um, Part of it doesn't quite make sense, or you can make sense of it if you like, um, which is that Rachel is just so obviously a replicant from the get-go that um, it turns out that... um, just being severe and unfriendly and um, self-assured is not a signature of being a replicant, Um, and that her answers are um, answers that make it take Deckard, what is it, 120 questions, um, to figure it out for sure. Um, And it's partly that Rachel doesn't know that she's a replicant. So that's the crucial thing, is um, can you be a replicant and not know it? Um, Roy and Leon and Pris, um, they know they're replicants, um, but the question is, can you be a replicant and not know it? Now, in um, the director's cut, this is the crucial um, or really important difference between the director's cut and the original version of the movie, um, is that in the director's cut, Deckard has a dream, and what he dreams of is a unicorn, and it's actually really sappy. Um, And um, the idea would be, well, you dream of a unicorn because unicorns, um, because Peter Beagle, um, because unicorn tapestries, um, because they're magical. Um, And so somehow dreaming of a unicorn is dreaming of freedom, dreaming of hope, dreaming dreaming of impossible hope. Um, dreaming of another world, an innocent world, a fantasy world, you could say, instead of a science fiction world, um, where the difference between a fantasy world and a science fiction world is that science fiction worlds tend to take place in very bleak landscapes, either cities or um, other worlds without much vegetation or atmosphere, um, or spaceships, um, but in landscapes that are highly reduced from um, overwhelming uh, of overwhelming natural phenomena and fantasy worlds tend to be worlds which are very rich in their landscapes Middle Earth, Hogwarts um, the, there might be a way in which the Hunger Games trilogy is, is kind of having it both ways um, but generally uh, the difference between science fiction and fantasy is the difference between technology um, and nature and um, the, um, and Blade Runner is very much a technology science fiction world in which nevertheless Deckard has a dream of a fantasy in the director's cut. Um, and unicorns also, because unicorns are, um, are chimerical, they're biological creatures that don't exist but that are put together... Um, at least in the human imagination, out of parts of other biological creatures. Um, and so there are lots of reasons for him to dream of a unicorn, but essentially it's a dream of freedom. In the version that you saw or should have seen, he doesn't have that dream. Um, but at the very end, Gaff, um, Edward James Almost, um does his little tinfoil origami unicorn um, right, which he puts right outside of Deckard's apartment and the idea is that um, if Deckard dreamt of a unicorn no one knows that except Gaff knows it and Gaff knows it in the same way that what? where has Deckard known something that um, in a normal world he wouldn't have known? Yeah. Uh, he,
1: he knew the kid's childhood.
0: Yeah, he knew Rachel's childhood. He knew about the spider. That spider, by the way, is the spider that comes from um, it. That that does come from *Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?* um, And it, the spider is ripped apart in the book. But in the movie, he knows this story, um, this memory that Rachel has had. Um, the memory really comes from whom? Do you remember? Tyrell's niece, yeah. Um, and he just explains in, in, in this totally um, awkward, ridiculous way, implants. Remember, okay, bad joke. Um, well, that's lucky. I didn't realize it was a bad joke. Now I feel better. Um, but um, so in the same way that Deckard knows Rachel's most private memories because they're implants, because they're not hers. They don't belong to her. In the same way that Deckard knows that, um, Gaff knows what Deckard is dreaming of, unicorns. So the idea would be, therefore, that Deckard is... Replicant. Yay! That Deckard is also a replicant. That Rachel doesn't know that, to use um, Deckard's wor- um, word, that it is a replicant. Um, Rachel doesn't know that she is a replicant um, and it turns out that Deckard doesn't know that he's a replicant and that underlines Rachel's question which is have you ever taken that test yourself um, that is she finds the test um, intrusive um, um, impinging on her subjectivity on her privacy and when she says to Deckard have you ever taken that test yourself Mr. Deckard um, that the payoff for that is well had he taken the test he might have found out what she finds out about herself, um, which, that it, which is that he, too, is a replicant. And then the very end of the movie, um, in, the, in the original theatrical release, um, they do achieve freedom um, in the director's cut, that, that last bit of stuff, which um, is apparently um, from, was footage that was originally shot by Kubrick for The Shining, but not used for it, um, that footage isn't in the director's cut um, when they finally leave the city and go into beautiful nature. Um, it a little bit has to do with what happens at the end of the book, um, and it has to do with the mercerism part of the book, which is, which is not at all part of the movie, but there's a mystical religion in the book called mercerism, which is actually quite fascinating. Um, and Mercer is living on the coast of California in a radioactive wasteland, um, but still, um, it would be preferable to be with him um, rather than to be in the city. Um, but, so, but the major difference is in, the, in Ridley Scott's preferred version, it's clear that Deckard is a replicant. In, um, and that's what we find out for sure at the very end. In the original theatrical release, it's not clear... And you may not, it may not even come up for you as a question. Um, and in a way, the question is, should it come up for you as a question? Now, Deckard, um, his name comes from where? That's also the name that Dick gives him. So in the novel, he's also named Rick Deckard. Uh, where do you think Dick got the name? Yeah, Descartes. Um, so Rick Descartes, see, wasn't that nicely done? R. Descartes, R. Descartes, um, yeah, he's a Cartesian figure. Um, he is the figure who doesn't know, as Descartes claims, purports not to know, whether he's dreaming or not, whether other beings exist or not, in particular where other minds, whether other minds exist or not, um, Chris at one point when they're at J.F. Sebastian's house um, and um, Roy when they're there and they're talking about how wonderful J.F. Sebastian's toys are which are biological toys um, what she says to J.F. Sebastian is I think therefore I am J.F. um, which is Descartes' famous um, sentence which we've already discussed and which you're about to read if you haven't read it yet Um, cogito ergo sum or um, je pense donc je suis Um, I think, therefore, I am. The fact that I'm thinking proves that I exist. Um, So Descartes, as you'll see, um, is considering the question, does the outside world exist or not? Um, He says, here I am thinking that I'm doing certain things, um, believing myself to live in a world, but I've had the same experience in dreams and found out that I was wrong, that um, people I dreamt that I was seeing, people that um, places I dreamt that I was in, things that I dreamt that I was doing, it was all false. None of it was real. So how do I know that I'm now awake? How do I know um, that the outside world really exists or not? Um, and he thinks about it for a while, and he says, well, I don't know. I can't know. Um, there's no way for me to be sure that I'm not dreaming. But then he comes up with um, a hypothesis for why he might believe that the outside world exists. And that hypothesis is a paranoid fantasy um, a really interesting, it's really interesting that it is a paranoid fantasy um, it's almost as though he needs a paranoid fantasy in order to explain why he might be fooled into believing that an outside world exists when it doesn't and the fantasy is that someone is fooling him what he calls an evil genius or an evil demon um, an evil spirit Though he's using the word genius to mean spirit that there is an evil spirit that is essentially making him think that the world exists in a certain way, that other people exist, that other beings exist, that the outside world exists, that matter exists, that everything that he perceives really exists, Um, there's an evil genius that is making him think those things. So in the movie Blade Runner, who would that evil genius be? Tyrell, yeah. Um, Tyrell, who's doing the memory implants. Tyrell, who is um, giving the replicants the experience that they're having. Um, There's an amazing moment. How many people have read Frankenstein? Um, Which is really where these ideas start. That is the idea of androids and replicants start. Um, So there's an amazing moment in Frankenstein which um, um, the movie version of Blade Runner is clearly um, intentionally recalling, which is that when Leon and Roy go to um, the um, lab, the, the um, extreme low temperature lab, um, where um, the guy is working on eyes of various sorts, and part of the way you can tell that Roy and Leon are Physically superior to human beings um, as they're designed to be is that it's incredibly cold there, but they go in without uh, the cold really affecting them or bothering them. Um, and the guy recognizes um, Roy as Nexus Six and he says, You Nexus Six, um, I, make a, I make your eyes. And Roy has this great line where he says, Do you remember? Do you remember? Yes, if you could see the things that I've seen with your eyes. And he really does this great emphasis on the word you're there. Um, So first of all, there's a really neat idea that your eyes no longer means your eyes. That is, you know, use your eyes. Um, But that eyes are now things that you can give to someone. That is, they're things you can make for someone else. Um... You know, if you could, if you could surf the things that I have that I have surfed with your iPhone, um, eyes are alienable. But what Roy is doing there, and it's quite beautiful, is he's describing himself to use a phrase from Emerson as a seeing soul. That is, he's the one who's doing the seeing. The eyes may come from that. Um, industrial lab, but Roy is the one who sees. So he sees with eyes, but seeing is what matters. Um, Emerson has a great line in his journals, it does not matter whether it comes about by two or three or four steps according to the genius of each, but for every seeing soul there are two absorbing facts I and the abyss And so the idea of being a seeing soul Means being a soul that will eventually confront the abyss There are two absorbing facts I and the abyss And Roy is a seeing soul And the things he has seen Out of the manufacturer's eyes Um, That returns at the end of the movie When he says to Deckard I've seen things that you can't imagine. Um, and then his descriptions of the things that he's seen are just quite beautiful, quite wonderful. Um, things that he's seen outside of Earth, um, in the stars. I've seen things that you people could not imagine. Um, but that moment, the moment of um, the insistence on Roy as a seeing soul, That for Mary Shelley When she was writing Frankenstein That for her was what Gave her the idea That she um, Really could write um, A horror novel Um, So What she wanted to do She says this in the preface to Frankenstein Is she wanted to write a horror novel And she couldn't come up with an idea And couldn't come up with an idea And then suddenly as she was lying in bed Um, this idea did come to her, what if you created an artificial human being? And then she imagined what it would be like, she says, that um, the creator who had communicated a spark of life to the hideous corpse that he had reanimated, um, as soon as he saw that life, he would freak out, um, and he would hope that it would extinguish itself if he didn't do anything. Um, and then um, he would go fleeing from it, and he would go to his own bed and pull the curtains. These are a time when beds all had curtains. Um, pull the curtains, and then um, hoping that that would be it. And then she said, and then I thought of the moment when he he tried, he closes his eyes, but he cannot sleep. Um, he seeks to rest, but he is unable to. Um, then suddenly the curtain is Is drawn, and there is the creature that he has made staring down at him, looking at him with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. And then her next line is, I opened mine in horror. So the idea for her, the moment of maximum horror, is the idea that you could have created another seeing soul, that the monster that you created isn't only an object, not only, oh, my God, a monster, or, oh, my God, a spider. Unless you're a severe vegan, um, your reaction to a spider will be, spider, yuck, death, but not spider buzzing, lamenting, dirges in the air. That's actually what um, Marcus Andronicus says about flies in Titus Andronicus. What What if that fly had a mother or a father, after someone kills a fly, to buzz lamenting dirges in the air. Um, but generally, people don't think that way about flies. But here, this monster would not be like a giant bug. It would, be, it would be something that you saw could see. That's the crucial thing. You could see that it could see. And then one of the climactic moments of Frankenstein is, um, refers back to that. What happens in that moment is Victor Frankenstein sees the monster, finally chases him down after mo- after the monster has done some questionable things. Father. Um, as Roy says to Tyrell, I've done some questionable things having to do with murdering a lot of people. Um, Victor Frankenstein chases the monster down and um, he can't... He's full of rage and anger Um, And he starts screaming at the monster whom he has no reason to believe will understand a word he says But he starts screaming at the monster And he says, fiend, reveal me of thy detested sight I don't want to see you anymore, get gone (coughs) And the monster Actually they have talked by now, he knows the monster can speak Um, And the monster, um, instead of taking off Says, thus I reveal thee thus, excuse me, thus I relieve thee. And he puts his hands on Victor's eyes so that Victor can't see him now. And the astonishing moment there, which I think is what Blade Runner picks up, and it's a hugely philosophical moment because it's a moment about other minds, is that Victor's attitude towards the monster is, you are something horrible, be absent, be missing but the monster knows in a a way that Victor doesn't that the person he's talking to is a seeing soul that is the monster knows that he can put his hands over Victor's eyes it's not an aggressive gesture it's just a gesture, he can put his hands over Victor's eyes and knows that Victor won't be seeing him if he does that he sees Victor as a seer Whereas Victor, up until that point, has not seen the monster as a seer. But it's when you see someone else as a seer, as someone who sees, when you see someone else as a seer, that's the moment of striking transition for Mary Shelley, the moment of horror, to some extent, in Blade Runner, the moment at least, if not of horror of the sublime, if you could see what I have seen out of your eyes, that Roy is a seer. He's not the opposition solely. He's also a subjectivity. And this movie's a movie about the fact that he's a subjectivity, that he is another mind. There's a strange way that Descartes does not see the evil genius as a seer. He sees him as... Um, as a um, mechanism to cause him, Descartes, to hallucinate, but he doesn't see the evil genius as a seer. And that's why he, even when he considers the evil genius, he still isn't considering the idea of other minds. So the thing to do as you think about Descartes, if you're looking for a paper topic, um, write fast um, about Descartes, is to look at the reasons... That Descartes gives for disbelieving in an outside world and compare them to the reasons that Descartes gives for disbelieving in other minds. They're not the same. In a lot of ways, they're similar, but in a lot of ways, they're different. And the Austin should, to some extent, help you with that. Um, the um, um, Austin essay on other minds. Um, okay, and enjoy La Captive. Great, 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 great movie returns to Brandeis.